0: Amen. Jesus, we thank you that you are our King, the King of all kings. And we come before you now, we humble ourselves. And At the start of this series, Lord, my prayer is that you'll use this series, you'll use your Word, Lord, to touch hearts and lives, to make us more like you, Jesus, to help us to understand in a more full way all that you've done for us. blessings that you have poured out for us in you, Jesus. So we ask this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Just want to add my welcome to you. So great to be sharing with you, particularly as we launch off into this series over the next few weeks in the book of Romans, the series called God's Good News. I was reading about a Time Magazine article published back in 2020 that uh, was looking at the research around reading the news. And basically what it found is that reading the news is bad for your health, is what it found. No surprises there, maybe. But this is what it found, that more than 50% of people say that the news causes them stress, anxiety, fatigue and loss of sleep. And it went on to give a whole heap of other effects physically that the stress from that causes inflammation associated with rheumatoid arthritis cardiovascular disease and other serious health concerns so basically don't read the news anymore is what it was saying but I don't know about you but I think the world is in desperate need of some good news wouldn't you agree the world needs good news they're searching they need it desperately in fact maybe you've come this morning and you're in need of some good news Maybe the worries and cares and concerns of this life are weighing you down as well. Well, you're in the right place this morning. You've come to just the right place. If you're tuning in with us online, you're in the right place because Romans is all about God's good news. It's all about the gospel. So we're going to read from chapter 1 this morning. The first little part here I'm going to read from the New Living Translation because it translates the word gospel as good news. This is what it says in Romans chapter 1. This letter is from Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, chosen by God to be an apostle and sent out to preach his good news. God promised this good news long ago through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The good news is about his son. In his earthly life, he was born into King David's family line and was shown to be the son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. He is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through Christ, God has given us the privilege and authority as apostles to tell Gentiles everywhere what God has done for them so that they will believe and obey Him, bringing glory to His name. Let's pause there for a moment. Romans, at its heart, is a letter about the gospel, about God's good news. So it's not a surprise really when we read this introduction that Paul outlines right up front what exactly the gospel is. What is the gospel? The first thing that becomes clear is that the gospel is good news, not good advice. Um, The word gospel is not a word that we use in our everyday language, but in the time when Paul is writing this letter to the Romans, they would have understood exactly what this word meant. There's a famous account from ancient Greek history about a herald, a day-runner herald called Philippides. And back in 500 BC, this powerful um, Persian army, the superpower of the day, um, was invading Greece. It landed, the the fleet, the invading army arrived and landed at Marathon. Word of this came to, to the Greeks and they knew they were in for some trouble and so concerned, the king of Greece sent Philippides, the herald, to Sparta to send word to see if he could get the Spartans to help them to defeat and to fend off the Persian army. And so Philippides runs 240 kilometers from Athens to Sparta to ask for their help from the Spartans. But when he gets to them, they tell them, uh, yes, we will come, but we're not going to come until the full moon because of some reason. And that was going to be too late. And so Philippides, Turns disillusioned, discouraged, and he runs then the 240 kilometers back from Sparta back to Athens to tell this news to the king of Greece. But when he gets there, the Greek army have already left Athens because the Persian army are there ready to invade. And so the officials tell Philippides you need to now run from Athens to Marathon 40 kilometers to tell the news of um, that, that you know to pass this on to let them know this not great news. And so Philippides hits the trail again 40 kilometers. He gets all the way out to Marathon. When he gets there, to his great surprise he discovers that the Greek army have won this amazing victory and have somehow defeated or pushed back the Persian army. They've won this momentous, great victory. And so the king of Greece says to Philippides, Philippides, you need to go back to Athens. You need to run that 40 kilometers back and you need to let them know the good news, the gospel message, that the victory has been won. The Persians have been defeated. And so according to to Lucian, the historian, this is a true story. According to Lucian, the ancient historian, Philippides ran the 40 kilometers back to Athens. When he arrived there, the city officials were gathered together, anxiously waiting for a report of what had taken place. And according to Lucian, when Philippides arrived into the town square there, he said to the officials, joy to you, we have won. And then he collapsed and died right there in that spot. Poor Philippides. True story. But this is what would happen in the ancient world. They would send heralds. This is before, you know, radio, TV, social media, and you could post about what had happened. The king, if the king defeats the invading army, he sends back to the capital city messengers, he sends back heralds to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim the good news that the victory has been won, the enemy has been defeated. And Paul is using this same term, gospel, which the listeners would have been familiar with, to talk about the good news of the victory that Christ has won for us on the cross. The, the victory that King Jesus won for us, so that we can know peace as well. So, the gospel is not good advice about what you must do, it is primarily good news about what has already been done for you, something that's already happened in history. It's the news that something has that's happened that is so momentous that the world is now a different place. Martin Lloyd Jones says this advice is counsel about something to do and it hasn't happened yet, but you can do it. But news is a report about something that has happened. You can't do anything about it, it has been done for you, and all you can do is respond to it. Do you see the difference between good advice and good news? This is the difference between the gospel and every other philosophy or religion. It's a really important distinction. Other religions say if you really want to meet God, then you need to do this, 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 and this. It's good advice for us to follow, really. Only Christianity is not good advice, but primarily good news about something that has already been done for you. If I was to ask somebody uh, on the street this morning, head down the hypermarket and ask somebody, what do you think the essence of Christianity is? What does it mean to be a Christian? Um, I'm guessing that probably the average person there would probably say something along these lines. Well, it means to live a good life. It means to try and be like Jesus, to love your neighbor, to follow the golden rule, those sort of things. And I think this is a great idea. This is very good advice for us to follow. Um, but that's not news, is it? That's not news. That is advice. That's not at the heart of Christianity. It can't be because it's not news. Christianity is about something that has happened outside of you, something momentous that has shifted everything, changed everything. It's happened outside of you, for you. And that's what brings about within you this life-changing joy. And the result of that is which we can now say when we understand it, now I can truly live like Jesus. Now I can love people like Jesus loved me. Now I can really live according to the golden rule. So, this is the first point we see here in Romans 1 that the gospel is good news, not good advice. And then Paul makes clear the source and the origin of the gospel. He says, this is God's good news. This isn't some idea that I came up with, something, some philosophy that I created. This is the gospel that's come from God. It's not human idea. It's not human wisdom put together here. And we should be very glad about that, that it's not human wisdom. Because when you look around at the mess of our world, the brokenness of our world, we see very quickly that human ideas and human wisdom are seriously lacking We are so limited. Our best efforts fall so far short. Humanism says we don't need God, that we have what it takes, that all we need is is to look within ourselves, look deeper, dig deeper within ourselves, or to try harder. If we try really hard, we can do anything. But if we look around at the evidence around us in our world, if we look at the evidence in our own lives, we see that we actually are in need of help beyond ourselves. Have you found that in your life? We need help beyond ourselves. Our world needs help beyond human wisdom. Recently, I went with a friend to a 12-step fellowship for a celebration, celebrating four years of this person um, being free from gambling. And it was an awesome celebration. I've been there with this fellowship, this group of people. I felt very privileged to be there. But did you know that every time this fellowship and fellowships like it get together. They recite the 12 steps out loud together. And the first three are all about recognizing their need for help beyond themselves. This is the starting point for recovery. This is Step one is we admitted that we were powerless over this addiction that our lives have become unmanageable. Step two, we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to a normal way of thinking and living. And step three, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of this power. But this is the starting point to recovery and freedom. And it's the same principle for each and every one of us. We need help beyond ourselves. I don't know if you found that, but I found that in my own life that I need help beyond myself. I've found that if I leave my own, myself to my own thinking, my own resources, my own wisdom, things pretty quickly begin to become unstuck in my own life. And that's why this gospel message is such good news, because it comes from God. It's help beyond ourselves that we really need. Not human wisdom, not a human idea, not a man-made philosophy, but actually God's own good news for a lost world. And then thirdly, Paul explains the content of the gospel, what the gospel is about. He says in verse 3, the good news is about his son, which means the good news is all about a person. It's not just some sort of concept out there. It's actually about the person of Jesus. The gospel centers on Jesus. This is why we often say Christianity is not about a religion, but it's actually about a relationship because the gospel is about a person, the person of Jesus, and that we can have a relationship, a personal relationship with God through Jesus. And the truth that the gospel is about Jesus also tells us what the gospel isn't about, namely that the gospel isn't about us. It's not about our lives or our dreams or our hopes the gospel speaks about and transforms all of those things, but only because it isn't about us. Because the biggest problem we have is actually ourselves. Have you noticed this in life as well? Have you ever noticed that when you find yourself facing a challenge in a particular work setting or in a relationship, and you think, if I can just get out of this setting, then everything will be better? And so you find a new job or you, you um, end that relationship, leave that relationship, you move to a city to get a different city to get away from your problems. But then you arrive in that new city or you start that new job or you start into a new relationship and you find yourself facing the same frustrations, the same problems, struggling with the same emotions and feelings that you were dealing with back in the other place. Why is that? It's because you didn't actually leave your problem behind when you went. You actually took it with you because you are the problem. I am the problem. We are actually. The biggest problem is ourselves. The sin that we have within ourselves, our, our own heart condition that we have. We all have this same problem. So thankfully, the gospel is not about us. It's a declaration about God's Son, Jesus. Jesus, our King, who has won a victory for us. He's defeated sin and death. And he invites us to come in under his reign and rule. This is the good news of the gospel. And then Paul shows us here, right at the start of Romans, the call of the gospel as well. In verse 5, we see that the call of the gospel is to obey and to trust Christ. To live, it says, by the obedience that comes from faith. What does this mean? Well, the rest of the book of Romans will explain this in more detail, but it's worth highlighting two things right up front here. Firstly, it does not mean that Paul is teaching that to be saved, that the Gentiles must both have faith and do obedience, as though both are necessary grounds for being right with God. There is an obedience that comes from faith that springs from a wholehearted trust in Jesus. Obedience flows out of faith. It's a consequence of saving faith, not a condition for salvation. But secondly, it does mean that true faith in our hearts brings about obedience in our lives. It brings about a desire to live holy lives, to be more like Jesus, The reformer Martin Luther put it like this. He said, we are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves is never alone. It brings about this grateful, joyful, trusting obedience. It's a natural response of our heart when we understand properly the good news. Many people um, don't realise that the great English preacher and founder of the Methodist Church, John Wesley, was actually a failed missionary before he went on Um, with the great movement, the revivals that he led. But he went to America initially, and he came home very disappointed, a failure as a missionary. And the problem Wesley later discovered was partly summarized by a short phrase that he used, a truth that he came to realize. He said these words, he says, Holiness, I realized, was the fruit of faith, not the cause. This is what Wesley realized. Holiness was the fruit of faith, not the cause. This may be hard to understand, but it's really important truth. Wesley thought that he had to be really good, perfect, to sort of whip something up before his faith in God would be active. But what he discovered, that in fact living a good, a holy life, was in fact the outcome of faith in Jesus. Not what created the faith, but the outcome of it. In other words, you believe and trust in Jesus first And then holiness will follow if we've truly grasped the good news of the gospel. So Paul, in his introduction here, he's given us the form of the gospel that's good news, not good advice. The source of the gospel that has come from God. The content of the gospel that's about his son, Jesus, and the call of the gospel for each one of us. To live in the obedience that comes from faith. And so with this in mind, let's keep reading, picking up in verse 15. Paul continues. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Just as it is written, the righteous will live By faith, Paul says here the gospel is the power of God, that it has this life transforming power. And we know this, we see this all the time when we hear stories of people sharing their own journey of faith. We hear how it lifts people up, how it heals hearts, that it changes people from the inside out, not only heals people, but changes the way they see others and love others and live their lives. It's incredibly powerful the transformation, the power of the gospel. And when the gospel is outlined and explained and reflected upon, its power is released. Notice Paul doesn't say that the gospel brings power or has power, but that it actually is power, is what he says. So the gospel message is actually the power of God in verbal, cognitive form. And most of all, the gospel is powerful because it does what no power on earth can do. It saves us. It reconciles us to God and guarantees us a place in the kingdom of God forever. And that all that is required to know this salvation, Paul says, is it's offered to everyone. This is for all people, everyone who believes. And this is the first um, key statement or a clear statement that the only way to receive the good news and its power is through faith. Faith is the channel, the connection to the power of the gospel. Just like a light switch is the channel, the connection point between a light bulb and the electrical source, so in the same way that is what faith is for us, to the power of the gospel, the power of God. So what is it about the gospel? That makes it so powerful that enables us to be saved, it enables it to, to reconcile us to God. Well, Paul tells us in verse 17. He says, Because in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. The gospel is about the Son, about Jesus, but here we see the achievement of the gospel, and that is that a righteousness from God is revealed. So what does this mean? What's this word righteousness all about? Again, a word we don't use every day in our language, but we can get a pretty good handle on this word righteousness from the English thinking about this, the English translation of this word. Um, what does it mean to be right with someone, to be right with you know, your company or your government or another person? It's a positional word, isn't it? To be in right standing with someone. It means to have no debts, no liabilities to that person. You don't owe them anything. It means that you're acceptable to the other party. Your record has nothing against it to jeopardize your relationship with that other person. The other party has nothing against you. You're in right standing with that person. And so the righteousness of God here could talk about... um, God's character, his righteous character, that God is righteous, that he's perfectly good and holy. He's without fault or blame, um, perfectly pure in every way. God is righteous. But here Paul is talking about a righteousness from God. Right standing that is received from God, offered to us by his Son. And this is what the complex wording in the middle of verse 17 is saying when it says that this is righteousness is, is by faith from first to last. In which Paul, reading Paul is simply saying that righteousness is received through faith and always only received by faith. Right? We don't become righteous by faith and then we maintain it from then on by our own efforts. No, it's righteousness from first to last is what Paul says here. John Stott explains it like this, God's faithfulness to his promises and in the life and death of Jesus Christ always come first and ours is never other than a response. And it's important to realize how much more is promised here than just forgiveness alone when Jesus went to the cross. Many people think, well, yes, when Jesus went to the cross, he forgave my sins. An illustration that's often used to help understand this is the book illustration. We often talk about the fact that if a book like this represented our lives, uh, in it was recorded all the things we ever said and did, including the hidden things, the secret things that no one else knows about your life. And we know that in this book would be recorded things that we have done that would separate us from God, things that no one else knows about, wrong thoughts, wrong attitudes, wrong actions, sins of omission and commission. Our life, in fact, would be full of things that would separate us from God. And we talk about the fact that it's these sins in our life, if this represented our life, this chair, and and God is up there and we want a relationship with God, we talk about the fact that it's this sin in our lives that separates us from God, that stops us from being in right relationship, having having a relationship with God but jesus on the cross who lived the perfect life who was sinless he comes and on the cross he takes upon himself all of our sin the record of our wrongs colossians talks about that and he nails it to the cross and he takes that on the cross for us so that in in uh, as a result of that we can be made right with god our sins can be forgiven our slate is wiped clean But Paul is saying here, actually, that's only half the gospel. As good news as that is, it's amazing news, but Paul actually says that's only half the gospel story, half of the good news. He actually says there's more to it. You see, if you imagine that this book here actually was Jesus' life, his perfect life he he lived, never sinned, perfect in every way, all the good and the amazing and the righteous things he did. He said, imagine that this is a record of Jesus' life. When Jesus went to the cross, not only did he take the punishment for my sin, he took that upon himself on the cross, but at the same time, Paul says Jesus was the righteousness of God. And at that same moment, God was giving us a righteousness from him. Jesus himself, we were being credited to our life, all the good things that Jesus did. So that when God looked upon us not only did he see that our sins were forgiven that the slate was wiped clean but more than that he says now God has credited to you the righteousness from Christ the righteousness of God has been given to you so that when God looks upon you he sees you as forgiven but more than that as righteous because he sees his son Jesus and This is the incredibly good news of the gospel The amazing good news that it's from righteousness from first to last. It's not just that we're forgiven and then it's up to us to earn credit to our account. No, God has credited to our account already the righteousness of Christ. And when we understand this, it is life transforming to understand. And this is what Paul's talking about it's a righteousness from first to last. This is the good news of the gospel. But why do we need God to give us his righteousness? Why can't we earn it, deserve it, or attain it for ourselves? Well, Paul continues and he explains why receiving this righteousness from God is critical. Why unless we receive this righteousness from God, we are still left in a hopeless state. He explains this to us. We're going to pick it up from verse 18 and it gets pretty uncomfortable and confronting. So buckle up, prepare yourself as we go into the rest of this chapter. This is what it says. But God shows his anger from heaven against all sinful, wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. They know the truth about God because he has made it obvious to them. For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Though everything God made, through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. Paul's saying none of us have any excuse. Deep in our hearts, all of us know there is something that has separated us from God, that we have gone our own way. He says, yes, they knew God, but they wouldn't worship him as God or even give him thanks. As they began to think up foolish ideas of what God was like, and as a result, their minds became dark and confused. Claiming to be wise, they instead became utter fools, and instead of worshipping the glorious, ever-living God, they worshipped idols made to look like mere people and birds and animals and reptiles. And so God abandoned them to do whatever shameful things their hearts desired. And as a result, they did vile and degrading things with each other's bodies. They traded the truth about God for a lie. Isn't that a picture of the world in which we live? The mess and the brokenness. Paul is saying, this is it right here. This is the outcome. And so they worshipped and they served the things God created instead of the creator himself. It wasn't just idols they they worshipped, but they served money and sex and materialism and power, the things that we worship today. They traded and served the things God created instead of the creator himself, who is worthy of eternal praise. Amen. Paul says this is the problem. This is the problem with our world. This is the problem in our own hearts. Paul says we need a righteousness from God because Our sinfulness goes far deeper than we realize. Our hearts are far darker than we can really understand. And he says we need this righteousness from God as well because God's anger, because of God's anger and wrath towards evil and injustice and towards sin and towards us as sinners as well. And although this may be confronting and uncomfortable, you cannot fully understand how good the good news is until you understand how serious and how terminal the diagnosis is for each and every one of us. The diagnosis is terminal. The heart condition that we have, the problem of sin, it it leads to death is where it goes to. And when we say God is angry, that God has wrath, we have to be very careful because we're not saying that God's anger is like our anger. Most often when we get angry or we see other people get angry, usually it's ego, usually it's crankiness, it's losing our temper is normally how it comes out. And then afterwards, we wish we hadn't have responded how we did in our anger. How often does that happen for us? But that's not part of God's wrath at all. You need to understand this. This is one of the reasons people get offended when we talk about God's wrath. They have a human picture of of anger and wrath. But God's wrath is never temper. You need to understand this. Rather, God's wrath is a way of talking about his absolute and complete opposition to evil and injustice. And that is what we want in God, don't we? Don't you want a God who is opposed to injustice and the evil in our world? Tim Keller says, many people say, I don't believe in a God of judgment. I don't believe in a God who sends people to hell. I don't believe in a God of wrath. I don't believe God's wrath is on all of us. I think he loves people. And Keller says, well, he says to those people, do you believe in Jesus? And very often they'll say, yes, I do. Well then, well, why did Jesus come and die on the cross? And they will say, just to show us God's love. That's all. But Keller's a lecturer in seminary was Dr. Roger Nicole and he used to tell a story like this. He said, what if you and a friend are standing side by side watching a bonfire and all of a sudden your friend said to you, let me show you how much I love you and then he ran and threw himself into the fire and died. Would you say, wow, look at how much my friend loves me? You wouldn't say that. you say, what is he on? What is wrong with this guy? Why is he doing that? But if you're standing in front of a burning house and your child is in that house, and your friend runs into that house and saves your child and dies in the attempt, then what would you say? You would say with all your heart, "Oh, how my friend loves me and loves my child. And Dr. Nicole said, don't you realize if Jesus Christ dies, gives his life on the cross, and we're not in any trouble, we don't have the wrath of God on us, we're not on our way to eternity without God, we're not lost, then his death isn't a sign of love. It's irrational, it's senseless, it's crazy. You see, only if you see Jesus Christ coming in as a substitute, taking our sin, but more than that, taking the wrath of God upon himself, paying the price, bearing the punishment, taking that wrath of God for us, will you really see, not until you understand this, will you really see the magnitude of his love? If you say, I just believe in a God who loves everybody, that's a sentimental view of God. But is that going to change you from the inside out? It's not going to transform you. The cross shows how God can love us and be absolutely just at the same time. Until you believe the wrath of God, you can't really believe in the love of God. At least not at this level, not at this magnitude. You'll never ever have your heart transformed, changed by the sight of God's love on the cross unless you understand what is fully going on there. Right now, some of you have a view of God that's mainly judgment about a God who lays down the rules. You better be good. You, you better do this and do that. And, and underlying this is, is really a heart of fear. I want to tell you that that doesn't deal with your anger, with your fears, your insecurities. It just makes it worse if that's your view of God. On the other hand, some of you have a view of God that he's a very loving God, that he just loves everybody and he's there just to meet my needs. Well, I want to tell you that's not going to deal with, with your anger, your fear, your insecurity either. Because as life goes on and, and you don't get the life that you want, then you're gonna that you feel like you deserve from God, then that's gonna to lead to a whole heap of other responses as well. You see, it's only if you believe and understand that on the cross the justice of God and the love of God We're being fulfilled at the same time and equally that it will humble you out of your anger and affirm you out of your fear and your insecurity and transform you truly from the inside out. Only then will you fully understand the the fullness of God's good news for you and encounter its power to transform you. Paul Eshelman was the man responsible for distributing millions of copies of the Jesus film around the world. He tells about a time that the film was shown at a refugee camp in Mozambique on the southeast coast of Africa. And although most of the people had never heard the gospel, they fell in love with Jesus through the film. Uh, when he was arrested, when he was beaten and led away to be crucified, they began to weep and wail. The people were um, just so upset. Many were rushed toward the screen. Their cries and the dust they stirred up as they all moved towards the screen actually meant that the, the, the team there, they had to shut the projector down because of the dust that was coming in to the projector. So they turned it off at this point in the film. And for 30 minutes, the townspeople were on their knees weeping and confessing their sins, Each of the uh, film crew members and counselors relayed how they would try to approach one of the villagers to pray with them. But the Spirit of God was so real, the counselors themselves were falling on their knees, confessing their need for God, confessing their own sins, glorifying God. The sense of, of God's presence, His power, His holiness was so great in this moment. The counsellors told Eshelman that no one could do anything but confess sins. There was this deep, deep realisation that came on these people of their need for God, the true reality of the state of their heart, the terminal diagnosis, the significance, the impact their sins truly had in their lives. You know, when you experience the presence of God, you cannot help but recognise your own sinful state just how far we are from God. But Paul Eshelman said that eventually, after more than 30 minutes, the Jesus film crew, they were able to get the projector working again and they turned on the movie so that people could see the rest of the story. And when the townspeople saw how the story ended, that Jesus conquered sin and death, that he rose again victorious, Eshelman said the crowd exploded as if a dam had burst. Everyone began cheering and dancing and hugging one another and jumping up and down. The sight was incredible to witness. When the invitation was given for people to accept Christ, to receive the good news, nearly everyone in the crowd wanted to respond. The following Sunday, 500 new believers showed up at this 40-member church in Mozambique in this refugee camp. You see, it's only if you understand the depth of our brokenness, our need for God, that you can fully comprehend just how good the good news is. It's only if you believe that on the cross, the justice of God and the love of God were being fulfilled at the same time and equally, that the good news will transform you from the inside out. Because the gospel reveals to us that we are far more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe. Yet we are more loved and accepted in Jesus than we ever dared hope. This is God's good news. It has power to salvation for everyone who would believe. Will you join with me as we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this good news, amazing news. Thank you that it has power to transform our lives. And now, as we're about in prayer in these moments, we want to reflect on it. We want to allow your Spirit to speak to us, to move in our hearts, knowing, Lord, that this this message. that changes everything. So now as we're bowed in prayer, if you're here this morning and you've never come to that moment, of placing your faith and trust in Jesus. Maybe up until this point, you've understood parts of the good news, parts of the gospel. You didn't know the full story. Maybe you knew there was something lacking, something missing, and now you see, "I, I understand the fullness of this good news. Well, this morning here is an opportunity for you to respond in faith and belief, to receive Jesus, to receive this good news. And if that's you this morning, you'll know because as I've been sharing this good news message, it's not me, it's the Spirit of God, the power of God that reveals this and makes it known. And if that's you this morning, i want to, I'm going to pray a simple prayer and I want to invite you to make this prayer your own, just in your own heart and your own mind as we're bowed in prayer. You make this your prayer. If you're online this morning, you make this your prayer You know this morning God's calling you. You understand more fully what this is about for the first time. Or maybe you've never heard it before, but you hear it this morning. You're saying, yes, Jesus, I want to come to you. I want to give my life to you. Well, if that's you, I'm going to pray this prayer now. You make it your own just in your heart and your mind. You make this prayer your own. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son for me. I acknowledge that I am a sinner that I've gone my own way, that I need help beyond myself. And so I come to you this morning in repentance and faith. I'm sorry for living my own way. I'm sorry for turning my back on you, but this morning I come to you humbly. I give you my life. I invite you to be my King and my Saviour. Come into my life by your Holy Spirit. Lead me, guide me, direct me. I pray this in Jesus' name. Lord, I want to pray for any who have prayed that prayer this morning, online or here in the auditorium this morning, Lord. Fill them with the joy of your salvation, Lord, the knowledge that their future is secure in you, that they have been forgiven and made righteous in you, Jesus. And I pray for those of us here this morning who know this truth, Lord. I pray that as we as we wander on this amazing good news again, Lord, that it will stir us, that we will remember the call of the gospel, the call to live in obedience, the call to live holy lives, Lord. I pray for some of us here, maybe there's things we're wrestling with, sins we're struggling with, barriers in our journey with you. Lord, I pray that the good news of the gospel will move us again, Lord, to seek you, to pursue you, to live in faith and obedience, to live holy lives, Lord. Move us from the inside out, I pray. Become more and more like you, Jesus. Your power released within our lives. This is my prayer. And so we thank you, Lord, for this message. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done for us. And Lord, may we become messengers of this good news, Lord. Messengers and heralds of this good news to our world, we pray. A world desperately in need of good news, Lord. Use us, fill us to take this message to our community and world we pray and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna sing a song of response. If you're here this morning and you prayed that prayer, you knew God was speaking to you, I wanna encourage you to tell someone that you prayed that, to say to someone, that was me this morning. Come and talk to one of the pastors. If you came with someone, we have Bible gift packs we wanna give you. The Alpha Course starts in just a couple of weeks. If you're online, same for you as well. Let your host know or email through to us so we can encourage you on this journey as well. But we're gonna respond this morning and worship our Saviour, our King Jesus. Let's stand on our feet as we do that. Let's worship Him with all our hearts this morning.
1: Jesus, for my family, I speak the whole.
0: hands together. Can we put our hands together as we worship Jesus? He's so worthy. What an amazing King. Lord Jesus, we give you all our praise this morning because you've done it all for us, Lord. You've won our salvation. You've conquered sin and death. And now, Lord, we are so blessed to be in you, Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray, bless each and every one of us, Lord, wherever we are on the journey this morning. And I pray you'll bless our conversations now as we continue just to fellowship with one another. Go before us, I pray, in this week as we hold on to this good news message, Lord. And I pray your blessing on each one and ask this in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Please be seated. Don't forget our prayer be down the front, our prayer lounge up the back, our connections lounge if you're new as well. But God bless you. And thanks so much for sharing with us this morning. And don't forget church meeting, particularly for members at 11.45. God bless.